Our Father, we do look to you to now bless your word to our hearts. Give us minds that can comprehend the truth. Give us spiritual ears to hear your voice, your voice, our Lord, speaking to us on the page of the written pages of your written word, containing your words to us, your people, both to proclaim your glory and to conform us to the image of your glory, to equip us for every good work, to train us in righteousness, to rebuke us and correct us where there's sin, to comfort and encourage us where we need the word of grace. Would you accomplish all of these things in our hearts this morning? We offer this time to you as we do all of our lives, and we pray in the matchless name of Christ. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, as we continue here through these last, not even days at this point, but the last hours of the Lord Jesus Christ as he's headed on his way to the cross. We find ourselves this morning in verses 31 through 35. Matthew 26, 31 through 35. And as are many of the passages that we're looking at as we go through these final hours of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, This one is particularly familiar to us. It's well known. And it's one that God has given to us, recorded actually in Matthew and Mark and Luke repeatedly, because it's a word that we need to hear. It's a very needed portion of Scripture, as is every word on the pages of Scripture. But this in particularly is a word of comfort to us this morning, a word of instruction and a word of comfort. It's a word of comfort because it reminds us of two things, things that have been repeated as we walk through, but two particular things this morning in this account of Peter and the disciples being told they will fall away. And the first is this, it's a reminder to us of God's absolute control in the midst of even the worst of tragedy. God's absolute control over all things, even when things seem hopeless, even when things seem out of control, even when things seem like nobody is directing it, it has no purpose, things that drive us into confusion. Reminds us that God is absolutely in control. And reminds us secondly of this, of the overwhelming grace in Christ that is always standing against or against the backdrop of the blackness of our sin, of our sin of our failure, of our times of unbelief, even of us who know Him, even of us who are alive in Christ, even of us who have the Spirit of God, and yet always needing to remember that we stand in the grace of Christ alone. The grace of Christ alone. The main idea then here this morning in this passage is this, that God sovereignly brings suffering, trials, even ordains our failures And he does so to reveal our weakness, to reveal areas of sin, to reveal areas of unbelief in our heart, but only so that his glory and grace in Christ might be all the more magnified and so that we might be more useful to him. Let's read verses 31 through 35 of Matthew 26, and then we'll look at this more closely. Begin in verse 31, Matthew 26. Remember, this is following after the Passover meal that Jesus has just instituted as a new covenant meal. Verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, 
I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing too. Look back up at verse 31. And let's note that God is sovereign and purposeful in the midst of the greatest tragedy. We are to remember that God is sovereign and purposeful in the midst of the greatest tragedy. As I mentioned before, this comes on the heels, this passage of Jesus sharing a Passover meal. And indeed the last Passover meal in all of history he's sharing with his disciples and it is here at this meal that he transforms it into a new covenant meal that reminds us of the death and the resurrection and the coming kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and this evening has been for the disciples and and for us even as we go through it and relive it with them really an incredible evening of so many dramatic happenings and things that the Lord has not only done but that the Lord has taught them that really would have had their heads spinning now many of the events between that we've looked at here and that are recorded for us in John 13 remind us that this was an incredibly eventful evening John tells us that near the beginning of the meal that Jesus goes around the table, the Lord of all, the Lord of heaven and earth, the one they confess to be Christ, the Son of God, goes around the table and he takes on the position of a slave and he washes their feet, which certainly left them all stunned in that moment trying to capture that event. Next, later in the meal after that, he tells them that one from among their own number One of the twelve, one of those nearest to him, is going to betray them. Matthew records that for us in verse 21. And then there's the dramatic transformation of the Passover meal to a remembrance of his death and the coming kingdom that it was was soon on its way. All of these things are swirling around them and their heads would have been spinning. And no doubt over many of these things they would have been confused trying to figure it all out and place it into the paradigm of what they were expecting in terms of the kingdom and specifically in terms of the ministry of Jesus himself. And there's still some vestige of thinking, no doubt in their mind, that, will, that is evident that the kingdom was still going to be an announcement of glory, that somehow, even though Christ was saying these things about his death, that there was going to be some exaltation of Christ, some exaltation of themselves even in the kingdom of God. Even into the Last Supper, they're arguing and jockeying for position among the disciples. They weren't fully getting it. And so even among this thinking, then Jesus keeps dropping these bombshells on them. He keeps dropping these truths that they were having to process. And here before chapter or verse 31, it says that they're out singing these hymns, these Hallel Psalms, these songs that speak of the victory of God for Israel, these psalms that speak of the loving kindness of God and the forgiveness of God. And as they're on their way to the Mount of Olives... Somewhere along that way, Jesus says to them this. 
you will all fall away from me this night. This night. This is a stunning statement that no doubt would have hit them very hard. Almost like getting punched in the gut. And it's hard to imagine, again, the, uh, the emotional, the spiritual, the intellectual kind of turmoil and back and forth that the disciples would have been feeling. And remember that even as he says this, the last word that he gave them of betrayal was that one of them would turn on him, one of them would hand him over. One of them would break every confidence that had been entrusted to them. And at this point, of course, they still don't know who that is. There's still a a certain even kind of sense of wondering, is it one of them? Is it one of the twelve? Is it it one from among their number? Judas isn't with them at this point, but nobody suspected him. And so they were still confused. And now he tells them, all of you, not just one of you is going to betray me, but all of you are going to stumble. You're going to fall away. You're going to be offended by me. And you're going to do this this very night. And in the timeline here of these last, this last day, this is really in only a matter of hours. Only a matter of hours these things are going to take place. And while a shock to them, Matthew is continually holding before us, and Jesus is before the disciples, the reminder that everything is happening according to plan. Everything is happening according to the plan of the Father. In other words, he's in absolute control in the midst of even these great tragedies that are coming. And what's even more, by acknowledging that God is in absolute control, by the knowledge of that coming from Christ himself, it is also then a picture of Christ submitting to this plan, his willing obedience to the will of the Father. His willing obedience to the will of the Father. And again, Matthew is constantly repeating this, constantly holding this before us, as really do all of the gospel writers, because they needed to get this, and we need to get this. They needed to understand this without doubt. They needed to have absolute clarity on this. And so Jesus is continually, continually reminding them of what is to take place. Several times he's reminded them, I'm going to be rejected. The chief priests are going to turn on me. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be raised on the third day. One of you is going to betray me. All of you will fall away from me. I understand, essentially, Jesus is saying that this is all going to take place. Nothing is going to take me by surprise. I know what I'm getting into. I know what the Father has planned for me. I know what is written. I know what is written. And we read it actually a little bit earlier that Jesus knew that at the time they weren't going to get it, but they would later. He says in verse 19 of John, chapter 13, actually we read something else, but John 13, 19, he says this, From now on I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. So that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Actually, back in chapter 12, verse 16, he had said to them, When Jesus was glorified, or John says, Then they remembered that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things to him. In other words, God wrote it all down. He told his disciples, Jesus did repeatedly, God wrote it all down so that they could see that, Look, 
look, nothing is happening that God didn't foretell. Nothing is happening that God didn't foresee and let you know that he was going to do. And by doing that, it also is a a subtle reminder, not so subtle, but to them that not only are these things going to happen, in other words, by God saying these things, it's not merely to say that God knows that these are going to happen as, as if it were just a matter of fact. It is to say this, God planned it. But to say God planned it is also to say this, this is the best way that for these things to come about. In other words, what's going to come, this is wise. This is good. This comes from the mind and the purposes of an infinitely wise and a good God. These things aren't random. He's not just trying to bind up loose ends of things that are inevitable. But God says, no, no. It's right that things happen this way. It is a wisdom that is inscrutable, Paul said after he explained the whole gospel in Romans 11. It is unsearchable to our wisdom. It's not something we can wrap our minds around any more than these disciples could wrap their minds around. But it is good. It's good and it's right. And God is in control. And not only is he telling them, but he says, look, it was written down a long time ago. Look at verse 31. He says, for it is written, for it is written... I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. He's quoting here from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. You can turn there briefly if you want. And listen, we're going to look at this for just a moment. But look at, uh, actually go ahead and turn there. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. Zechariah 13, 7. This, of course, is one of the minor prophets. So if you go back from Matthew, then Malachi, and then you'll run into Zechariah. And here in Zechariah, which this prophet has so much to say under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about this coming Christ and all the events that are going to take place. And so it here is, is here in chapter 13. And in verses 1 through 6, God is anticipating this time that is going to come in which he will deal with the false shepherds of Israel. Those who come who are not doing the will of God. And he says, I am not a prophet. He says, uh, it will come about in verse 4, that in that day that the prophets will each be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies, and they will not put on a hairy robe in order to deceive, but he will say, I am not a prophet. I am a tiller of the ground, for a man sold me as a slave in my youth. In other words, he's addressing here those who take on the position of a prophet, but they are not, and they will be found out, and they will be dealt with. And then in the midst of this, we come to verse 7. And here the prophet says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hands against the little ones. Incredible, incredible prophetic word. And the question really is here for those who first heard it and for us is who is this shepherd? Who is this my associate? Who is this one he's speaking about? It's it's Yahweh who is speaking. It's God who is speaking. Look at the middle declares the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts is it's one who is a shepherd of the Lord of hosts, an associate. And these are striking terms. 
In other words, this one he's speaking about is no ordinary leader. He's one in close association with the Lord. And we don't necessarily get that so much from my shepherd. That exact language there that he uses, translated my shepherd, is used also of Cyrus, a pagan king that God would use. It's used in Ezekiel 34 of false shepherds who were not obedient to the will of God and, and were not faithful shepherds of the nation of Israel. But the, the catching part is really the second part of that phrase. My shepherd, my associate, my associate. It can be translated as companion, friend, and neighbor as it is in the Pentateuch. Here it is, my associate in the NASB. Some have it as my equal. The ESV, if you have that, has it as one who stands next to me. The ASV, authorized standard version, says one that is my fellow. And this shepherd then is one who stands in an intimate relationship with God. And he's one who stands in direct contrast to the false shepherds of Israel. You could glance back over at eleven seventeen, the, the worthless shepherd who leaves behind the flock. This isn't those. This is one who is going to be near to God, near to God. One who stands in intimate fellowship. And though he is a man, and yet this is language of equality. Listen to what one Old Testament scholar, C.F. Keel, says about this This one described here as an associate. It says this. The idea of nearest one or fellow involves not only similarity in vocation. In other words, what they do. But community of physical and spiritual descent. According to which he whom God calls his neighbor cannot be a mere man. But can only be one who participates in the divine nature or is essentially divine. Here's one who stands in this unique relationship to God. This one who was going to be identified as my shepherd. That alone would have sparked the interest. That alone would have been to those readers and those who heard a point of at least curiosity. It would have made them want to inquire about who is this one? Who is this one? But really the shocking element isn't so much that, but it's the next part. It's the next thing that God says. It's the action that God takes against this one in such intimate Nearness to him. What does he do? He takes violent action. Look what he says. My associate, what are you going to do? I'll strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. And I will turn my hand against the little ones. And he calls out to the sword using a figure of speech where the sword really stands here for the idea of death. It's the instrument of death. So it's not so much the instrument that's important as it is what comes about from the instrument, namely to be killed. Death. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Why? To strike him dead. To strike him dead. So you go from this language of the greatest kind of intimacy to this language of great violence against this one so near to the Lord, even of his death. I will strike the shepherd. I will strike the shepherd is how it is used by the Lord. Here, simply strike the shepherd. The Lord of hosts is going to do this. He's going to bring it about. Clearly, there were messianic tones here echoing the language. Even of Isaiah 53, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to death if he would render himself as a guilt offering. 
And there's no sense of the atonement here specifically, but there is the idea of purification that somehow this striking down of the shepherd is going to ultimately have a purifying end for God's people. Look at verse 9. The end of it is going to be, they will call on his name. They will call on the name of the Lord and he will say, they are my people And they will say, the Lord is my God. They will be refined as silver is refined. They will be refined as gold is refined. Look what happens. When he strikes down this shepherd, he says, the sheep may be scattered. Or that the sheep may be scattered. In other words, in this case, he's going to be struck down so that the sheep may be scattered. Who are the sheep here? The sheep here in its broadest context, in its most immediate context, is the nation of Israel. It is the people of Israel. It is the Jews. It is the Jews. And it is here then a picture even of this judgment that's going to come on the, the land of Israel and the nation of Israel. As anticipated in Deuteronomy 28 when he says, as a result of sin, they will be scattered. They will be scattered. This certainly happened to the nation and it would happen to them in terms of looking forward. Even in 70 AD, they would be scattered among the nations. They're scattered today. They would be scattered until the time that God brings them together. But the main point here that I want you to notice is this. That this scattering and this work of God against his shepherd is not ultimately to judgment, although it includes that, but it is to restoration. It is to their purification. It is to the ultimate end of their salvation. At the end of this, after the refining, after the purifying, after the fire that they go through, they will call on my name and I will answer them and I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. Now go back to Matthew 26. Go back to Matthew 26, verse 31. So Jesus here gives a rather loose translation of Zechariah's actual words, but he takes those words and he takes the idea, he takes the identity of the shepherd and he applies it here to himself and the sheep to his disciples. And again, while the original readers of Zechariah would not have understood the full intent of the passage, all of those things that anticipated the coming of Christ became brilliantly clear at the coming of the Son of God, at the coming of the Messiah. They were unfolded with a brightness and with a clarity and with a brilliance and with a glory that could not be missed. And so Jesus unfolds some of that and shines light on this part of it here. In the middle of that verse of Zechariah, he pulls it out and he says, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. He is that close associate. He is the one, the eternal one, who is with the Father forever. Isn't that what John said at the beginning? He is with the Father, He who created all things, through whom all things came into being. Him who called God His Father and caused them wanting the Jews to stone Him because He made Himself equal for God. He is that associate. He is that associate. And He is the man, Christ Jesus. Matthew, of course, hints at that at the beginning. We've noticed that, that He is God with us, Emmanuel. But here he is saying he will be struck down, struck down, strong term. Speaks of violence with the result of death. 
He'll be put to death, but not by the will of man, again, but by the will of the Father. And that's the point. I will strike him down. I will strike the shepherd. This is God speaking. Again, the emphasis is on the absolute control of God. And the significant point to notice here, again, as well, is the perfect submission of Christ to this will of the Father. He knows what's coming He knows what's coming and he's here warning the disciples. But in spite of his warning and in spite of the the clarity of the way that he unfolds all of this to the disciples, they're still going to be unprepared. There's simply no way that they could have gathered all of this in and prepared their hearts, though they should have been more so. But their world is going to turn upside down as they're going to see one of their own betray him. His own people come with this betrayer and come with those from the army of the Romans and take him away in weakness, take him away binding him, taking him away to mock him, taking him away to abuse him and shame him in every way and then cry out for his blood. They had no category for these events. They had nearly no way to process that. It was going to stretch them beyond their ability to stand and expose them to confusion and fear and a sense of aloneness and abandonment and a sense of wonder of what was going to happen and how would they understand these events. And so that's really the focus then. And next is the second part of that prophecy. What's going to happen? The shepherd will be struck down and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. They'll be scattered But just like in Zechariah, not scattered in judgment, but scattered ultimately to be refined as gold and silver. In other words, their failure is designed by God, not only to increase the suffering of Christ, but to purify them, to break them, and to humble them, that they might be strengthened and more useful to God. Let's notice then the second point here, that God is sovereign over trials that make us more useful to Christ. God is sovereign over those things that come into our life that reveal our weakness, that reveal our failure. And those are necessary things for God to do because we need to be humbled. You need to be humbled. You and I both need to more profoundly understand our insufficiency within ourselves and our own sin and the bitterness of it and our own weakness. Because in that, God reveals his mercy. He reveals his strength. And we become more useful to him. So the question then that might be asked, or at least I'll pose it. If you're not going to ask it, I'll ask it for us. And that's this. Why would God do this? Why would God do this? Why would he have them go through this? What is the point of it? Why would he have them all scattered? Well, again, one reason was already mentioned. Because God is... Trying to make, and not only trying, but does make, has determined to make the suffering of Christ as exquisitely painful as possible. He is the mediator. He's suffering as the Lamb of God. And every point that we're reading now here is that suffering that's going to take place. And it's going to be designed to be as bad as it possibly can be for a human being. But the second is this. It's to humble them. It's to humble them. The disciples were believers. The eleven here are believers in Christ. They're regenerate. Not yet have they experienced the fullness of the new covenant since, but they are genuine believers in the Messiah. But they were constantly 
selfishly ambitious. They were constantly not getting it. They were constantly looking to their own interest and not to those of Christ Jesus. They were self-reliant and they needed to be humbled. They needed to taste their own weakness before they could really be useful to Christ. And let me tell you, beloved, God will not use, indeed he cannot use, proud people in his service. Pride and service to Christ are in contradiction. They're in conflict with one another. And so God will constantly be addressing and putting himself against our pride that raises up against the knowledge of him. It's not until we've been humbled in spirit. Indeed, you can't even enter the kingdom of God until you come to that place of poverty of spirit where you despair of anything good within yourself, anything righteous within yourself, until you've come to that place of absolute bankruptcy of any good or hope of your own effort and you look to God and see all of your sufficiency in His provision, His provision in Christ. That's the very beginning of the entrance into the kingdom and it is the spirit that must mark those in the kingdom always. It is the need that we have to hunger and thirst for righteousness And God is constantly working in our life To produce that to greater degrees in us To produce in us the attitude of John the Baptist He must increase, but I must decrease And the fact is that the more that your heart or my heart is filled with self Then the less clearly we will see Christ and the less useful we will be to him. And so that's what he is addressing here. And again, they were largely self-centered, preoccupied with their status in the kingdom. As I mentioned earlier, all the way up to the Last Supper, all the way up to this very event, they're still... They're still wrestling around who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Just listen, Luke twenty-two twenty-six. He says this, in verse 24, And there arose also a dispute among them as to what? Which one of them was, would be regarded as the greatest? Who would be the greatest in the kingdom? Who would receive the most honor and glory? That's where their heart was. And the Lord knew that. He knew that painfully well. He knew that painfully well. And so he needed to do something and he needed to tell them, you're going to be broken and this is under the sovereign hand of God. It's under the sovereign hand of God. And while the Lord is particularly going to focus on Peter, it's really the hard attitude of all the disciples. You can look at the end of verse 35. After Peter's episode in conversation with Jesus, it says all the disciples said the same thing too. Of course they did. What were they going to say? It, they weren't going to not deny him? Of course not. Peter had set out that mark and they were all going to follow along as they always did. But here's the point. Here's the point for us. That the heart attitude that resides in us, any heart attitude of self-sufficiency and pride, the Lord needs to correct and purify. And he does that by letting us sense our own weakness and failure. That's how he does it. That's how he does it. And God is omniscient and he knows the heart of Peter and he knows the heart of the disciples and he knows your heart perfectly. He knows it perfectly. He knows where there's vanity inside of your heart. 
He knows where there's pride and self-sufficiency inside of your heart. He knows where you have loves inside of your heart that are not right loves. They're not the good kind of loves. They're not centered on righteousness and things of the future kingdom to come, but on self. God knows all of those things. He knows them better than you know them, better than I know them in my own heart. And God knows the best way to address them. And out of his great love for his children, he does. He does address them. And he does it through trials and exposure of our sin. He knows the best thing that you and I need to see our own hearts. He knows. I just just struck recently of how opposite this is to thinking of the world where there's exposure of sin, particularly in public figures. And what do you hear constantly is the mantra, that's not who I really am. That's exactly the opposite of the gospel. Exactly the opposite. When God exposes sin in our hearts, the Christian says, that's exactly who I am, and it needs to change. It needs to change. I need to be like Christ. I need grace. And so here, Jesus knew exactly the kind of breaking that Peter needed. And so he needed to be broken of a self-sufficiency. So Jesus says, you're all going to fall away. And then in verse 33, we read it earlier, Peter says, though all may fall away because of you... I will never fall away. This is really quite amazing, isn't it? It's really quite amazing. This is exactly the same kind of attitude that got him in trouble earlier in chapter 16, isn't it? Christ says, I'm going to go, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be killed. And Peter says, no, you're not. No, you're not. You need to come over here. I'm going to explain to you how things are actually going to happen. And he has to say, get behind me, Satan. You're setting your interest on man's interest and not on God's. And here Peter is taking that same attitude, brash and proud, really having missed the point of everything that Christ taught. Remember that we're coming now here. Matthew's making it very concise, but all of the events of John chapter 14 through 17 have already taken place. All of the teaching that Jesus had given to them, and particularly what he said in John chapter 15, verse 5, apart from me you can do Nothing. You can do nothing. But apparently this teaching was missed. It was overlooked. And so Jesus is going to have to address it in another way. And notice here, well, you wouldn't necessarily notice it reading, let me tell you. But you would pick up on the idea. And it's this, that the, the, what's strange, that I is here, is in, it's, in, it's in what's called an emphatic position. In other words, it's being emphasized It's being emphasized. In other words, it's like saying, I bolded and underlined it with lots of spotlight shining on it. I would never forsake you. Why, Peter, would you not forsake Christ? What, pray tell, would be so certain inside of you that would make you be able to say you would not forsake Christ? Well, clearly, because I am too bold. I am too strong. I am the leader I am too committed. I am courageous. I would never fail you like that. Never. Never. And now the others might do that. I can understand how James might do that. I can even see how John has some weakness and he might fall away. I can see how Andrew and some of the others aren't quite where I am. I can understand that. But Lord, I will never fall away. They may, but I won't. And the fact is, as we would rightly, and God holds it up for us to criticize that attitude in Peter, 
we would have to acknowledge as well that Peter was endowed with a boldness of character. He was. He was endowed with a boldness of character. He did have a natural strength and a courage that God had given to him. And he did, in fact, have a strong love for Christ. And as much as Peter was the first to speak the foolish things, he was also the first to speak the glorious things. You are the Christ, the Son of God. Where else shall we go? You have the words of life. His mouth was used just as much to speak truth as it was to speak foolishness. And of course, even when he was restored later, it was Peter who merely heard that it was the Lord on the shore and he jumped into the sea to go be with the Lord. His love was genuine. His love was genuine. He wasn't being hypocritical when he said this. He wasn't being a hypocrite. He was just being proud and he was being foolish. And that's what the Lord needed to address. And he would address it, of course. Down the road, he would be more useful to the Lord. Through the coming of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the new covenant, Peter would also be the first one to speak about Christ, wouldn't he? The first one after the day of Pentecost to declare the gospel and God would use him. But here's the point here. As long as Peter was operating in his own strength, fueled by a sense of his own self-sufficiency, then God could not use him. Or indeed, God would not use him. He needed to fail. 1 Corinthians 10, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Now Peter had many gifts, many strengths for us to admire, many things for us to emulate in his character and in his life and in his boldness. But he had what we call sometimes a besetting sin. A besetting sin. And those are those particular expressions of the flesh that are unique to each of us that fight against the Righteousness that we are to pursue. Peter, it was self-reliance, self-assurance. And even afterwards, later in his ministry, Galatians 2, we remember that interaction between Peter and Paul and he had to be confronted there again because of a, a, because of a cowardice. God will not use proud people in ministry, beloved. And he will not, he will not extend the gifts of grace and intimacy with Christ where pride resides in the heart. And let me suggest to you this, that you may have a particular strength that God has given you. You may have a particular area of skill, a particular area where you are uniquely gifted, where you have a unique ability. But in your deep affections, if you rely on that strength, if you rely on that ability as your own possession as something that you can exercise, as something that you can rely on to be effective outside of the grace of Christ, as long as you think the resource for effective use of that gift lies in you, then you are primed to fail. You're primed to fail, and so am I. Until you have tasted your weakness, until you have tasted your own sin and the bitterness of it inside of your heart, until you have tasted the vanity of relying on your own strength, then whatever God has given you will not be useful and effective for Christ's kingdom. And again, it makes you primed for the instruction of God. And self-reliance is the default of the fallen heart. You know, some may boast, and, and no doubt maybe some of us have here. You don't have to raise your hand. 
in a similar way. If I had to die for Christ, if I were at the stake and the gun were pointed to my head, I would stand for Christ. I would die for Christ. We have examples of that even in our own recent history, Columbine shootings and others. The martyrs, those who suffer for Christ around the world, our brethren in other countries that don't have the freedoms that we have today at least. And we sometimes think of ourselves maybe as being in their line, that we would stand, we would be unbending, we would be bold. And so we have this sort of dramatic picture of these events, of what we would do. And maybe that would happen, maybe, maybe not. But we're also the same people that cower of witnessing to somebody that we think might be intimidating, might think of us as being silly or stupid might not think of us as being respectable. And so our mouths are shut. And we fall into the same thing that Peter did here, liking to boast ourselves up with a sense of boldness when in reality there's a weakness in our heart that needs to be exposed. And, of course, the way that things are going in our nation and our world, we don't know what kind of courage God will require of us to be faithful to Christ. But it is the kind of courage that begins each Day as we express our faith and are faithful to him. Now there's more going on here that meets the eye. Earlier in the evening, Jesus had already actually warned Peter of the same thing. In Luke chapter 22, verse 31, they were still around the table at that point, and Jesus had told Peter, and he said, Hey, Simon, guess what? Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat. And of course, not only him, but all of the disciples, but Particularly, he addresses Peter. And he reminds them that, Peter, there's more going on here than you think. There's a spiritual battle taking place. And you better wise up and you better be aware of it because you have an adversary who wants to expose every point of weakness in your heart and take every temptation that you are going to face and use it as an opportunity to destroy you and to destroy your ministry. And of course, that did happen in a dramatic sense to Judas, but he wasn't a believer, but he succumbed. But even here to Peter and the disciples, he says, look, Satan wants to make you fall too. He's after you. Satan has his darts primarily aimed at God's leaders, but really if you name the name of Christ, you have a target on your back for intense spiritual warfare. Interestingly, Calvin rephrases Jesus' instructions in this way. I think it's helpful. He says, When a short time hence you shall see me oppressed, know that Satan employs these arms to fight against you, and that this is a convenient opportunity for destroying your faith. He goes on, We know that Satan desires our destruction, and with great skill and acidity, he seizes on every method of injuring us. In other words, Satan wants to exploit every area of weakness. He wants to use every area of temptation to make you fall. Now, Peter would later warn, we're well familiar in 1 Peter 5.8, that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, looking to whom he might devour. He learned his lesson at that point and was able to instruct, but here he had not yet learned that lesson. But notice in that same thing, too, just as a footnote, That Satan asked permission. Satan asked permission, presumably from Christ, maybe even of the Father. But he asked permission from God. And that permission was granted. It was granted. 
I'll never forget when I was in elementary school of uh, going to the principal's office, which was not uncommon for me, and uh, was going to get a spanking, and I told him that he couldn't spank me. My parents wouldn't allow it. And so he called my parents, and my mom said, spank him. (laughs) I was shocked. I remember it to this day. I think I was in fourth grade. Well, here's something, this idea is that, guess what? Sometimes God lets us get spanked, and he ordains that discipline because he knows that we need it. It needs to expose. And so here, Satan asked permission, and God granted it to disturb the the confidence of Peter. The confidence of Peter. But ultimately, it was God who was sovereign, sovereign over all of these things. And in either case, regardless... It's your own personal sin and unbelief being exposed when you fall, and for me. And each one of us has a tendency toward a particular expression of our sin. Some are obvious, some are more subtle. Some are those sort of outbursts of anger or outward kind of things. Some may just be the inward sense of envy and pride and jealousy, or whatever it is that we can't really, others can't see so well. But God knows, and He sees them with equal clarity, and He will address them. And one of the primary ways He does is through trials. And so notice this about Peter. I want you to see how that comes out of here with God's dealing with Peter. So Peter said that he's not going to deny, he'll never fall away, he's never going to let the Lord down. But Jesus says, look, in verse 34, I say to you this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. In other words, it's almost like he's saying, look, Peter, there's something specially designed for you. The others are going to fall away, and yes, that's going to be humbling, but you It's going to be even worse. You're not simply going to fall away. You're not simply going to run off somewhere so they can't capture you. No, you're going to be much more personal in your weakness and unbelief. Peter, you're going to deny me three times. You're going to deny that you even know me. This is a strong, strong term. That's the idea of refuse to give a thought to, to acknowledge, even to reject Now, Peter may be reflecting a certain self-reliant confidence on what Jesus had called them to earlier in Matthew 16, 24, where he says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. And it might be Peter even kind of reflecting that and saying, yeah, I've done that and I would never deny you. But he's doing it in his own strength and that really becomes the issue. Whatever was going on through his heart, it wasn't humility. As a matter of fact, even after Jesus said all of these things in verse 40, he's not even going to be able to stay awake. He's not even going to be able to keep his eyes open. And in fact, not only will he not follow through with the need to deny self, but he will actually succumb to his own weakness and deny Christ. Deny Christ. And here's really something that's at the heart of the problem. This is really at the heart of the problem. Not only for Peter, of course, not only these disciples, they're just a model of what goes on in our own hearts that Jesus is exposing here. But it's, it's really something that is, affects all of us. And it's this. It's this. It's a failure to fully understand the reality. And, and what would you fill in that blank with? It's really a failure to understand the reality of grace. It's really a failure to understand the reality of grace. Have you ever, and I'm sure that you have, I know that you have, many of you, 
understood that as glorious and as wonderful as the reality of grace is, grace is also the most humbling reality in the entire world. And that's, you think, why do, why do sinners reject the message of grace? Why did we reject it before God changed our hearts? Why was it so offensive? Because while grace points to the sufficiency and the glory and the greatness and the grace and the mercy and the love of God, it also says, that's your only hope. It's your only hope. You are so thoroughly wicked. You are so fully corrupt in your heart. You are so utterly blind and devastated in your fallenness that you have no hope in yourself. God must do it all. And that's wonderful when you've been humbled by your sin. It's wonderful when you've been humbled by your sin, but if not, it's a message that is offensive. It's a message that isn't offensive. But this really, what he's doing to Peter and what he's teaching us is the, really the gospel. It's the gospel. See, Peter, you're not really totally devastated of yourself yet. You haven't really realized who you really are. You haven't really understood your weakness. And so I'm going to help you do that. I'm going to help you do that. You might even ask yourself, how do you always tell? Because we are to be bold for Christ. What is the difference between a, a proud confidence like Peter has here and a humble confidence like Peter will have later and like other believers have had? What is the difference? Well, it's this, really, in its most simple form. It's simply to say this. In the deep thoughts of your heart, do you say when faced with a difficulty and with a temptation, I can do this. I can do this. Or... Do you say, by God's grace, I can do this? By God's help, I can do this? By God's enabling, I can do this thing that he has put before me? The first is a natural default of our proud flesh. The second is the fruit of grace. One knows its weakness, and the other does not, and relies on its own strength. And we already mentioned this, but one of the marks of it is a failure, what do you think, to pray. To pray. That's what Jesus is going to address a little bit later. There was no prayer because there was no dependence. And there was no dependence because there was no real sense of their weakness. When you feel your weakness, when you know yourself, then there's a deep need to call out for God and everything to help. There's a deep sense of the need for God's grace to enable you to do everything. And when there is success in your life, When there is spiritual success or any kind of success that God may bring, there is that deep sense of gratitude to God. Not personal satisfaction, but gratitude to God for enablement. Listen to what Paul says. So Paul gives an example of the opposite side of this. So Peter would be the negative side at this point. And Paul would give the opposite side. And you say, what does that look like in my heart? What does it look like to have the right kind of confidence? What, is it, what does it feel like? What are the things that my heart is really thinking and saying and feeling inside when I'm truly walking in grace? Well, Paul tells us. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, he says this. You know it. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was within me. The grace of God that is in me. And that's the attitude of a humbled heart. It's not cowering. It's not frightened. It's not this little woe is me, of course, anything like that. It's the meekness that is bold. It's the meekness that says I I can fulfill what God has given me to do, but I can only do it by God's strength. But in God's strength, I can 
because I know that I have no resources in myself. So Paul labored and he worked and he had confidence to do all that God called him to do, but it was a confidence in this, the steady supply and the living grace of God in him through the Holy Spirit that would enable him to do everything that God called him to do. Paul preached the gospel, but what did he say in 2 Corinthians 3, 5? He says this, Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate of servants of a new covenant. It's not that Paul is so great. It's not that you are great. It's not that I am great. It's that anything that God does is a reflection, and a Christian needs to know that deep in their heart is a reflection of God's mercy to us. It's a reflection of his grace. What do you have that you did not receive? We know that if we build the house, it is in vain. The Lord must build the house. He must give fruit to our efforts. And so again, that's at the very heart of the gospel. It's at the very heart of the gospel. That's why Jesus more than one time gave them that illustration of a child. And he says, you must have faith like this little child. You must come to me like that. You can't come to me proud. You can't come to me on your own terms. You need to come to me and you need to live in me with that kind of faith. A childlike faith. A dependent faith. A humbled faith. That's the beginning of life and it's how we live life in Christ. Poor in spirit. Devastated of our own goodness. Filled with the knowledge of our own corruptions and depending always on the free grace of God in Christ alone. Again, it's the heart that's necessary for salvation and necessary for us to be useful and to grow in the kingdom. Notice one other thing about here, what's going on. And it's namely this, that Peter did not, and it's kind of obvious, but let me point it out. And then I want to jump quickly to the last point. Peter did not listen to the warnings. Peter did not listen to warnings. And he didn't take precautions. He had trusted in his own heart. And what Peter did was he fell. He fell. But he didn't take precautions. You know, we can learn some of the lessons that God has to teach us without so much pain. You remember what David said in Psalm 32? Don't be like the horse and mule who by bit and brill, they need to be led around by the the force that that God has to exert on our lives. And he says, don't be like that. Be humble. Be quickly yielding to the motions of the Spirit in accordance with the Word of God. Be quick to obey. Don't be that way. Take the warning. But Peter didn't do it, and so often we don't. And what happened? He fell, and verse 75 tells us that we'll get to down the road. He tells us this. He went out and he wept bitterly, utterly broken, utterly devastated, utterly destroyed, utterly despairing of himself, ashamed of his failure, ashamed of his pride, absolutely broken before the Lord. Couldn't lift up his eyes, no doubt, to to look at the Lord. So ashamed was he of his failure. And you know what? That was a good place to be. That's a good place to be. When God brings you there, be thankful. Be thankful that God, first of all, loves you enough to discipline you as a child. It expresses his love for you. And be thankful that God is increasing your holiness and your, the glory of the grace of Christ as you turn to him in those times of weakness. Be thankful when God breaks you like that. Pastor Ted talked about that last week. Be joyful when you receive a trial, when it shows you your weakness, because in that weakness, Christ is made strong. 
So I would just ask you this before I briefly mention the last point, and that's this. How well do you know your own heart? And how seriously do you take the reality of indwelling sin? How seriously do you take the reality of indwelling sin in your heart? God will reveal that to you through trials. But we also can know how seriously we take it by how seriously we pursue putting death deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. How seriously we pursue the spiritual disciplines that we might know Christ and be guarded against this same temptation. Let me note this last point, and that's this then. God brings you low to reveal the glory of his grace in Christ. God brings you low to reveal the glory of his grace in Christ. I already already mentioned that, but go back up to verse 32 just briefly. Go back up to verse 32 of Matthew 26. You probably wondered why we skipped over it, and that was to be the last point. He tells them, look, God is going to strike down the shepherd. You, the sheep, are going to be scattered. You're going to be dispersed in fear and confusion and unbelief. But look at verse 32. Isn't this amazing? This is so wonderful. He says, but after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. After I've been raised, I'll go ahead of you to Galilee. And what is Jesus doing here? He's he's assuring them of this. You will fail, but he just as assuredly is telling them that grace has not been canceled. I'm going to, you're going to fail, but guess what? I'm going to rise and I'm going to come find you again. I'm going to gather you together. In other words, failure is not the final word, but grace is. Mercy is. His loving kindness. His tenderness. He says, after After you have failed, after you have fallen away, guess what? I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to search you out. I'm going to find you, and I'm going to restore you. And I'm going to teach you. And I'm going to make you useful in my service. You're going to fail. You're going to face bitterness of your weakness. But that's part of God's plan. He's saying, I'm going to experience the most bitter part because I'm going to undergo the deepest and the darkest suffering and I'm going to do that because of your failure, because of your sin. I'm going to take on the worst of it. You're going to fail because you're weak and that's who you are. But it's only to show you my strength and my grace and so that you might understand why those things had to take place because I had to suffer on your behalf. And when I've done that, And when I've been raised and when I've defeated death, I'm going to come looking for you and I'm going to restore you and I'm going to strengthen you and I'm going to teach you and I'm going to assure you of my presence and I'm going to assure you of the love of the Father and I'm going to assure you of my continued plan for your life and how I'm going to use you in my kingdom and how you're going to be useful to me and how you're going to now be humbled and you're going to be more able to be useful to me. This is the heart of Jesus in Matthew 11. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and what? I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Why? For I am gentle and I'm humble in heart. Take my yoke. Yes. And this is that same attitude of the gentleness of the Savior. And so part of the reason that God lets us fall so low is because the lower we go, then the more glorious Christ becomes. The more wonderful grace becomes. The more dependent upon it we come. And the more useful we become. And the more we love him. And then the more we hate sin. And the more we're warned against it. And the more we want to serve him. And the more we want to be useful to him in this world. And the more we want to follow him. And the more we want to know him. That's the point. That's the effect it should have in a believer's heart. 
The failure only leads us to the cross again and again and again to know that our sufficiency is in Christ and it's in Christ alone, but it's an inexhaustible sufficiency of grace to mold us and to make us more like Christ. I'm going to just end on this, this one uh, quote. This is Richard Sibbs, an old Puritan, but he captures that idea of how our hearts are being made tender to see the glory of Christ. And he says this, I am sure, well, this tenderness of heart is wrought by an apprehension of tenderness and love in Christ. A soft heart is made soft, but by the blood of Christ. I am sure that nothing will melt the hard heart of man but the blood of Christ and the passion of our blessed Savior. When a man considers of the love that God has showed him in sending of his son and in doing such great things as he hath done, in giving of Christ to satisfy his justice, in setting us free from hell and Satan and death, the consideration of this with the persuasion that we have interest in the same melts the heart and makes it become tender. And this must needs be so, because that with the preaching of the gospel unto broken-hearted sinners cast down, there always goes the Spirit of God, which works in application of the gospel. And so when we are broken down, that's the idea, then all the more we see the grace of Christ, and we know in some sense and measure what Paul said, when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then I am strong because my strength is not my own. It's the strength that God supplies through his spirit that indwells me as a believer. And I just said that was in, but let me give this one last reality. As Peter said, or Jesus said to Peter, he said in the disciples, you know what? Satan's demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but guess what? I've prayed for you. I prayed for you. Your faith isn't going to fail, not because you're resilient, but because I am faithful to my promises. I have prayed for you. You won't fail because I have guaranteed your security by going to the cross and by always living, Hebrews 7.25, to make intercession for you. So, yes, you're going to fail. You're going to stumble, but you will not be hurled headlong. Why? Because you belong to me. You belong to me. And I won't let that happen. I've prayed for you, and I'm continually going to be praying for you at the right hand of the Father and we can take great confidence in that. Let me go ahead and pray. And I went a couple minutes over, so I'll pray. And instead of singing the closing hymn, this will also be our dismissal. So we'll dismiss after prayer. Father, we do thank you for this glorious and wonderful picture of Christ. We thank you for this reminder and example after example of your sovereign control over everything in our lives everything in this world, everything in the universe. And because we who know you know that that sovereignty is worked out by an infinitely wise and good and holy God who can never do anything wrong, in whom is light and there is no darkness at all, who is never weak, who is never foolish, who is never ignorant, who never has any motive but what is perfectly conforming to holiness and righteousness. It's you, God, who works out that sovereignty in our life to mold us and shape us into the image of your Son, your blessed Son whom we love and whom we trust. And I pray that we would learn from this lesson that we might avoid your discipline in many cases by dealing with our sin now and being open always to the exposure of it by the light of your word and by the circumstances of life that we might receive it, not chafe against it, and 
be conformed again to the image of your son by your spirit. And Father, help us not to fall into those same temptations but that we saw displayed here, but listen to your warning and take those precautions. And Father, for those here who don't know the Son, who hear these words and they might have understanding, but they have no spiritual taste, they have no flavor for them, they have not, they have not tasted of the reality of them and the kindness of Christ in their heart, I pray that you would remove the veil Remove the blindness and then that they might see who they are of themselves and see that there is no good thing and might turn to Christ in whom is all of our goodness and hope and forgiveness. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen.